Welcome to the first digital broadcast uh, for Faith Community Church in terms of our pulpit ministry anyway. We're so grateful for the technology that allows me to be able to uh, bring the Word of God today in the midst of what's a health care crisis for us. Yesterday our governor declared a health care state of emergency and requested churches to uh, suspend their meetings and we were happy to comply with that. Uh, because we understand that these ministers of the Lord, the governor and his public health officials, have been appointed by God for our good. And so we are coming up with ways, uh, and God's grace, to be able to continue our ministry uh, via uh, this week recording and hopefully in the, soon, in the near future live stream. These are unprecedented times for us. Uh, I think most of us would say we've never experienced anything like this in our lifetime either from a healthcare uh, uh, crisis or even from governmental oversight. A lot of people established uh, parallels in their minds with the Spanish flu 100 years ago in 1918, something that also caused the government to mandate the closure of churches and theaters and all kinds of public gatherings. And while I know there are significant differences between our current uh, crisis with COVID-19, the coronavirus, and the Spanish flu 100 years ago, certainly the level of government response is very similar. And I would suppose that the level of, of public anxiety and concern would be very similar. The Spanish flu ended up killing 829 people in the city of Atlanta when it had a population of about 200,000 back then. Now the, the, the city proper is about five times that size, and of course with the metro areas much, much larger. And people are concerned, people are questioning whether or not we're going to experience the same kind of tragedy in our, in our own day. Now I'm no health expert. Uh, I know from reading websites like the rest of you that there's still questions about the case rate of death uh, with this virus. Uh, the number of people who are going to be effect, infected, and, and we believe the government's taking measures to try to curb all of those things. But really, today, my concern is not primarily about trying to uh, wrap our arms around those metrics. My concern is more how do we respond as Christians. Regardless of whatever the final statistics, I believe that the focus for us shouldn't be a sense of fear or anxiety that has gripped everyone around us, but really we ought to be taking opportunity right now to express our hope in the Lord, the love of Christ toward our neighbors, our, uh, our, our trust in God's overall goodness. That raises a lot of questions for Christians. Uh, they wonder if we ought to be responding uh, to some of these mandates and some of these restrictions. They wonder what exactly does our faith look like? What does trust in the Lord look like in the midst of these kinds of, of situations? When we are complying with the same sort of uh, social distancing, as, as they call it, when we are withdrawing to our houses and uh, staying away from public gatherings, are these sort of fundamental compromises of who we are as Christians? How exactly are we to demonstrate our trust in the Lord? How exactly are we to demonstrate our hope? What role does our faith play during these times? Uh, does it really indicate uh, um, an undue fear for us to take these uh, measured steps, if you will? And if we really believe and say that God protects us, uh, that our hope is in Him, do we need to really follow all these Restrictions. Would it not be maybe uh, the right message for us to boldly go out in defiance of all these things and continue to meet together and carry on with our lives and just put our trust ultimately in Him? Are these the kinds of things that God would have us do? Those are the kind of questions I think people are pondering, uh, the kind of questions even that uh, a couple of folks have asked me, and so I know they're on folks' minds. So what I thought we would do today would be sort of to break away from our regular study in the Gospel of Matthew and just take some time as, as a body of Christ to think about what is our response? How are we supposed to think biblically about the crisis that we're currently in? And what does faith really look like in the midst of this kind of crisis? 
And so we want to talk about that, a Christian response, if you will, to, to COVID-19, a Christian response to the coronavirus crisis. And to answer a lot of these questions, I want to draw our attention to one of the great passages about hope and one of the great passages in all of Scripture about, if you will, the corruption, the, the disease, the fallenness of our world. And, and we'll find that in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, which is a particularly helpful passage to frame our minds about a Christian response in the midst of a fallen, corrupted, diseased, dangerous world that we live in. This is a wonderful passage, I think, for us because it is uh, one of those passages that has a very clear view about the, the state of the world in which we live, a world full of illness, a world full of wars and suffering and pain and disappointment and loss. This is not a, a passage of scripture. Uh, this is not a biblical writer who's running away from the realities in which we live. Uh, this is not uh, the Apostle Paul sort of walking in a Pollyanna manner through all of the heartache that surrounds him. This is Paul taking our gospel right into the midst of the world in which he lived, the world that the Romans lived, the world in which you and I live, a world with all of its infection and chaos and cancer and suffering and everything that goes on. And yet, in light of all that, it's a passage that is filled with hope. This is, in fact, one of the central themes. It's hope, or we might even say the hope of glory. You can see this as Paul begins in verse 18 talking about the glory that is uh, sort of set before us, really verse 17 and verse 18, all the way down through the end of verse 30, where again he's talking about our glorification, our ultimate hope in the future. So this is a passage that frames our response, if you will, to all kinds of tragedies, to all kinds of suffering. It frames our response and, and generates tremendous hope for us in a, in a hopeless, uh, painful, what Paul calls a groaning world. And he's helping us to reconcile something. He's helping us to reconcile the truth of what he lays out in the first, really, 16 verses of this chapter, really the entire book, but, but primarily in the first 16 chapters where he's talking about us as the children of God. We're separate from really everyone else out there because we have a hope in God. We have the evidence of that in terms of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is speaking to our hearts and telling us that we are God's children. And He's manifesting Himself to us in so many ways. And so we have that, if you will, we have that distinction in our hearts and minds. We have that conviction within us and yet, we have to reconcile that with the reality of our weak and fallen and frail and corrupted flesh sometimes. How, how do we do that? How do we express all of that? How do we, as put it, to put it in the words of Peter, how do we give an answer for the hope that lies within us when we're in the middle of a world of sort of uh, confusion and in our current situation, maybe panic and fear? Well, this is Paul's answer to us. He begins, or I can begin just by reading in, um, uh, back in verse 16. He says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified. With him. Now let me stop right there. Paul's talking about the issue of suffering. He's talking about the issue of suffering together with Christ. He no doubt has in mind specific persecution for our faith, but as we get into this passage, we'll take note that this goes far beyond just specific persecution. This is all kinds of suffering. This is, this is all kinds of corruption. This is all kinds of pain. This is the pain that, that spreads throughout all of creation. Listen to what Paul says beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy or are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this, uh, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So as we read through that passage, it's very easy to see this is a passage of hope. It's a passage of glory. It's a passage of God's providence, a passage that is framed, as we said, in the midst of all kinds of groaning and all kinds of pain, and yet it is filled with this, with this optimism as it looks at the future. And Paul is bringing all of this stuff together so that we can understand what the future holds for us and we can set our mind on all of those things. And really it's Framing for us, I think, uh, what uh, is an incomprehensible uh, future, especially in light of uh, everything that is visibly seen, and yet one that we capture by faith. Paul is, you might say it this way, he's sort of uh, taking the camera lens for us that is, in too many cases, focused so in on our present situation and trial that surrounds us, and he's zooming that out into the widest angle possible and helping us take in the entire scope, not just of our lives, but the entire scope of creation to frame in whatever our current suffering is in the wider plan of God so that the entire picture captures for us not only the very beginning of creation, but the very end of where we're going and helping us get that perspective. He wants us to have that perspective so that we can have the right patience, so that we can have even the right prayers in light of the plan and the providence of God. Now let's take a look at exactly what he tells us here, beginning in verses um, 18 and 19, all the way through to verse 22, as Paul talks to us about this perspective. That's, that's really the first point, if you will, that he wants to focus our minds on, the perspective that we need to maintain in suffering. And he states it in a very clear way in verse 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy or are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. So from a Christian perspective, for Paul, he says, the future hope that's laid up for us far outweighs anything in our present suffering. This is very similar, as you may remember, to what Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he says at the end of that chapter, he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Paul, whenever he was facing whatever he was facing, um, could be persecution, could be hunger, could be just the circumstances of life, whenever he was facing those things, 
He was constantly putting them into the, the scales of balance and he was weighing them against one another. And he says it's like having on your scales on one half of it, this, this, the, the whole weight and bulk of glory that awaits us. And the other side of the scale, as it were, is just mere dust on the scale, just sort of scattered across the, um, the, the, the tray there. The suffering, which is just the sort of the dust, is not even to be compared with the massive weight of glory that is awaiting us. Now, this obviously isn't something that's visible right now. That's why Paul's talking to us. So what he wants to do in terms of this perspective is help us by, by taking a look, if you will, of what is visible, what is uh, what we can see all around us, which is the created universe. And his point in all of this is that creation is experiencing its own frustration, its own sort of groaning. It's not doing what it is designed to do. It's not doing, and he, he kind of personifies creation here. It's not doing what it wants to do. Another way to say this is that this isn't the way things are supposed to be. This is not the way the world's supposed to work. We sometimes innately think that whenever we come across crises like this and we see people suffering and we see people dying, there's something within us that almost cries out to say, is this what God intended? And, and the short answer is no. God didn't create the world to be this way, and creation itself doesn't want to be this way. And so Paul personifies it, and he pictures it here. He says, creation, in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation itself, he says, if it could speak, if it was personified, it would, it would tell us of its own sort of misery, its own sort of frustration, like it has its own personal feelings. This is, by the way, very similar language to what you find throughout the Old Testament. If you were to go there, you see uh, the Old Testament prophets speaking about creation, not so much from its groaning, but more from its eventual restoration. As the prophets talk about the coming of the Messiah, as they talk about the coming restoration when the Messiah returns, it pictures uh, creation over and over again personified as cheering, as clapping its hands, as, as uh, glorifying the Lord and glorying in the Lord. Over and over again, mountains singing and skies rejoicing and all of that kind of stuff. Well, here Paul is giving us the picture not of creation then, but creation as it is right now. And he uses very vivid language here. The word here when it says the creation is eagerly longing for, it's a word for literally the head stretching itself out. It kind of pictures someone who stretching their head, standing up, if you will, on their tiptoes, trying their best to look ahead and to see on the horizon what might be coming. And so Paul pictures creation with this sort of yearning and eager longing for what? For the revealing of the sons of God, for the revealing of our true identity. What we already sense because of the inner testimony of the Spirit to be finally revealed on the outside. And he goes on to explain this yearning and this eager longing with three key phrases here in the next three verses. First of all, in verse 20, referring to creation past. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. This is a reference back to the opening chapters of Genesis, as a matter of fact, particularly to the fall of man, where we read that God declared in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground, or cursed is the earth, you might even say, because of you, because of Adam and Eve. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. We might add to that uh, earthquakes and tornadoes, disease and cancer, all kinds of things. God cursed the earth in those days. And as a part of that curse, cursing the ground and all of creation, 
God subjected it to what Paul calls a kind of futility, a kind of vanity, just an emptiness now to its purpose. You see, creation was made, it was designed to be a glorious theater, which was to put on constant display the beauty, the majesty, the wisdom of God in His glory. But what it has become because of humanity, what it's become because of us, is a malfunctioning theater. Uh, one with flickering lights and, and um, dilapidated structures all around us. It still reflects, if you will, God's glory, but as through a broken mirror, if you will. In fact, God, when He created the world in Genesis chapter 1, He finishes it off near the end of the chapter by looking and, 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 and scanning across His creation, and He says that it was very good. He looked at it and he was very well pleased with what he made. And at that point, creation was perfect. It was made without disease. It was made without illness. It was made without corruption. It was made without all of the pain and the suffering. But of course, it didn't stay that way. It didn't stay that way because Adam and Eve fell into temptation, because they fell into sin, because they themselves were, were marred in their own uh, inner man and their outer man. And because of all that, God cursed not just them, but He cursed all of creation because of them. So now creation brings forth these thorns and thistles, destruction and catastrophe. Whereas life was supposed to be a blessing under the glory of God, now it's a struggle, it's a fight. It's a dangerous place that we live in. That's not the original design. It wasn't the original state. It's not God's ultimate purpose. His ultimate purpose was that it would be very good, but since the fall, it has been a state of frustration, a state of, of inability to do everything that it wants to do. And so instead of that very good state at the end of Genesis 1, we have all that we see around us. And the world, is, the world is aware of that. When I say the world, I mean the people of the world. They're aware of that. I mean, all around us, there are people trying to save the earth, right? There are people who are, who are uh, clamoring to us to do everything that we can to stop the decay and the destruction and the disarray that's all around us, to try to reverse all of the, the negative effects of the world and they want us to ban our aerosol cans and to make more efficient cars and to stop burning uh, all of our fossil fuels or whatever it might be, to put up all the solar panels and all the wind turbines and everything that we can. All of that stuff in an effort to try to reverse what they believe is the decay around us. Every time there's a catastrophe, there's some fingers pointed at this cause and that cause and all of the other. But what Paul is telling us is that the only hope the only hope of really restoring or reversing any of this is the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. That's the only hope that we have. That's the only hope that creation has. Until then, we are going to be trapped in a cycle of corruption and decay with unfolding affliction and suffering all around us in mankind not just through diseases and viruses, but blizzards and tornadoes and avalanches and mudslides and floods and droughts and heat waves and meteor showers and solar flares and radiation and all kinds of things. The world's been cursed. We know that. The Scripture doesn't deny that. It doesn't, it doesn't flee from that. It has been cast into a state of entropy as the second law of thermodynamics tells us, the universe is winding down. It is disintegrating. It's headed toward a disastrous dissolution, an uncreation, as even Peter describes it in 2 Peter chapter 3, where all the elements of the universe itself are ultimately going to be melted down by God. All of this is happening under God's providence and under His we might even say direction, and it's clear to us. It's obvious to us if we just 
look around. Francis Collins, who was the director of the National Institutes of Health for a number of years and for 15 years even led the Human Genome Project, in a book called The Language of God, points out that the planet is disintegrating at such an enormously rapid rate. He lays out his calculations, and if you take them seriously and just mathematically extrapolate from them, calculate backwards, it is clear that the earth has been doing this at such a rapid pace. There, there would be no way that you could ever go back the magnitude that the world imagines is the true age of the universe in terms of billions of years. The earth is deteriorating way, way too fast for that. And it's all around us, and it is accelerating. And we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. The world is surprised. The world is panicked. The world is, is fearful when they see these things happening. It is so focused on the famines and the plagues, so focused on the destruction and the death, so fearful about, about their own sense of helplessness in the midst of that, but there's really nothing new. Especially for us as Christians, we recognize this has been going on uh, since the very beginning, for, since Adam and Eve, it's been going on. Just in terms of, of diseases and plagues, 400 years before the birth of Christ in the city of Athens, a massive plague crippled the city, brought down really the entire Greek uh, empire. Historians aren't really sure what exactly it was, smallpox, measles, typhus, or whatever it was, but it, its destruction was massive on the tens of, uh, uh, tens of thousands in that city, which you know, was not that large at that point, but just crippled the city. In the Roman Empire, uh, after uh, Athens, Greece was replaced by, by its forces. The, uh, the plagues continued. They're named after the various emperors who were in place during them. So you have the Antonian plague, the Cyprian plague, you have the Justinian plague, where we're told across Europe 25 to 50 million people died. When you jump ahead to 1347, you had the Black Plague, or the Black Death, which swept across Europe, England, Ireland, Scotland, Portugal, even into Russia. It was marked by an emergence of tumors in the armpits and the groin, some of which grew as large as an egg or as big as apples and black spots of rotting flesh would begin to sprout up all over the body. Somewhere between anywhere from 75 to 200 million people were told died, depending on how far spread it was, and one quarter of the people, one out of every four people died in Europe in those days. The 16th century, the Great London Plague, which swept across Europe. In fact, it made its way to Wittenberg, where Martin Luther was leading the Reformation. In 1527, it hit his city. Many of the residents fled to save their lives. Luther chose to stay, placing himself at great risk, ministering to those who were suffering under the plague, holding them in his arms as he died, trying to respond in a Christian way and preach the gospel of hope. In the 17th century, the Italian plague struck, and another one in Spain. The 18th century, another plague in London, one in Vienna. The great plague of Marseille in France. The bubonic plague in Moscow. The 19th century, once again, millions were killed in China because of the bubonic plagues that struck there. Over and over again, you go throughout history, you see these plagues. The Spanish flu would be among them. And, and medicine, no matter where it is in a stage of development, it does its best, but it is a constant battle. A constant battle that's not going to let up. Every now and again, something breaks out, some epidemic, some pandemic, despite all of our best efforts. And people are stricken. We could go on to talk about other famines and natural disasters and earthquakes that, that, that kill hundreds of thousands of people. None of it, none of it was the way God originally designed creation to work. None of it is the way things are supposed to be. 
All of it is the result of the curse. The initial outbreak of thorns and thistles surging, if you will, to a cosmic cycle of decay and corruption. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story because Paul takes us to a second statement about creation in verse 21 regarding the future. He says, creation was subjected to futility in hope that creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So God, not only did He curse the ground, but He gave hope. You say, well, where did He give hope? Well, right there, in the, right in the midst of his, of his curse, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, He gives a prophecy, the proto-evangelicon, as they say it, the proto-gospel, the proto-preaching in Genesis 3.15, when He says to the tempter, to Satan, that the seed of the woman was going to crush his head. This offspring that was going to come eventually from Eve herself was going to bring about not only redemption for mankind, but redemption for all of creation. And that promise becomes a thread that's woven all the way through the Bible, through the Old Testament, as you see over and over and over again, promises of a coming son and a coming seed and a coming child and a coming Messiah. Charles Hodge says this, he says, Nothing is more familiar to readers of the Old Testament than the idea that the whole face of the world is to be clothed with a new beauty when the Messiah appears. So unless you just want to read away all of those promises again and again throughout the Old Testament as something other than literal and, and by doing that eliminate all aspects of hope for the created world, you have to come to this conclusion that God gave us repeatedly signs of hope, something to look forward to. It was, it was a message that He wanted to put in front of Israel and us and everyone who claims to worship God. Now Paul understood this and he understood the tremendous hope and so he can say with confidence that God subjected the creation to this kind of corruption in hope. A hope, he says, that it will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So in as much as you and I are hoping for a glorious restoration, Paul says the same thing is going to happen to the world that you see around you. All, everything that you see that is being, in, in a way, undone is going to be redone. Everything you see, in a way, that is uh, kind of chaotic around you, everything that you see that's broken around you is going to be restored, it's going to be perfected, it's going to be made right again, it's going to be, it's going to be reinstituted, if you will, in that sort of Edenic uh, form that God originally made it in. And you can hear this as the Old Testament speaks about the restoration of the people of God. It often combines it with promises of the restoration of creation as well. So, for example, Ezekiel 36, and you hear promises of our own salvation that are then tied together with promises of, renew, of a renewed world. He says, I will put my spirit within you. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, speaking to the, the people of Israel and everyone who will believe in the Messiah. He says, You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, you will be my people, I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I'll make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 11. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine will give its fruit. The ground will give its produce. The heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. So there's promises of personal restoration, individual restoration for believers, national restoration even for Israel. But on top of that, the entire universe being renewed. And specifically... We have these promises in Exodus 23, You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you, He says. 
Isaiah 33, no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Or at Jeremiah 33, behold, I will bring to it, that is to the nation, to the land, health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. And I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. And I will cleanse them from all their guilt and of their sin against me. I will forgive them all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. So over and over again, when God is promising spiritual renewal, He's also promising what? He's promising, he's promising physical, material, creation-wide renewal, if you will. So it's clear that God gave hope. He gave hope over and over and over again. Hope for His fallen creation. It was subjected to futility, but in hope, He says, eagerly waiting the future freedom of the children of God. This is the hope of Scripture. It's not so much a contrast between the current place, that is earth, and a different place, that is heaven. It's a contrast between times. A time in which we currently find ourselves of corruption and disease and decay and, and suffering. And a time when we who are in Christ will be reborn, and all the world, when we are reborn, will itself be renewed. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, What is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. He's talking about our, our resurrected bodies, but those same things are applicable to the creation around us. Dishonor is replaced with honor. Weakness is replaced with power. All of those things renewed all around us. Well, very quickly, Paul takes us then to a third statement regarding the present state of creation. He looked at the past. He looked at the future. Now he tells us about the present. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Until now. This is the status of creation. It's birth pains. The birth of this new order, if you will, hasn't yet taken place. These, these promises of renewal that you find all over the Old Testament, they haven't happened yet. Even while our forgiveness has happened, even while our, our, our inner man has been renewed, the external part of us is still waiting and the external world is still waiting the fulfillment of all these promises. But in that, he says, there's this eager expectation this looking into the future and hoping, not of sort of disarray and, and, and death, but this eager looking ahead. And these are, these are birth pains of anticipation. And the pains that we feel, the pains that he describes in this personified creation, the pains that even we ourselves have in our own groaning, these aren't death pains. These are birth pains. So that no matter how bad it gets, and it may get much worse, it's not an indication of a loss of our faith, or a loss of our hope, or a loss of the promises of God. It's an indication of a coming birth. A coming birth. We're witnesses of the groaning pains of childbirth. We're witnesses of of, of, of that kind of last hour, if you will, before the glorious coming of new life. Creation trembling and agitating and suffering and groaning, all in an effort of wanting to glorify God, and it frustrated when, when famine and disease and suffering just comes over us in waves again and again and again, and it is not the way that God wants it to be. But it's surging toward a new end, not an annihilation, not, a, not a, an absolute sort of destruction of all humanity in the world, but a new birth, an end that is remarkable in many ways. The release not only of the children of God from all of our suffering, but the release of creation 
to be a place of soundness and health and, and uh, joy and the glory of God. And so we long for this. We eagerly wait for this. People will tell you that this is sort of Pollyanna. We shouldn't be all wrapped up in those things, that this isn't helpful, that we just need to be focused on the here and now. We shouldn't sit around and ponder uh, all of that stuff. But you could sooner tell an expectant mother to just focus on her own pains right now and not on the nurturing of the new baby in her arms than to tell a believer that he is to not ponder the new creation that waits for him. What a miserable place it would be if we didn't have that perspective. And so this is exactly what Paul wants for you and me. This is exactly the way he lived his life. He didn't run away from these realities. He didn't, he didn't stumble imagining that his faith somehow had no place in the world of suffering that he's in. In fact, he faced it head on and he understood it through the lens of the Word of God exactly as, it's, as it says in, in the book of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, exactly everything that God has revealed about where we are and what we're in and what we're facing. And, and in the midst of that, there has always been a message of hope and it is glorious. It is glorious. Now, maintaining that perspective in our suffering helps us prepare us, I should say, for the rest of Paul's encouragement here in this passage. And we can take note of it just briefly, beginning in verses 23 through 25, with the patience, then, that's required. We saw the perspective. Now we're going to look at the patience that is required in our suffering. In verse 23, Paul turns our focus from the broader creation to us as believers... And he says, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And in this hope, he says, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. Now we can identify with all this. We all face what is around us and we groan right? We groan, we sort of moan, we sort of, we sort of feel that inner tension and pain when, when we want to be free of all of this fear and danger and corruption that's all around us. We want the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what we wait for as much as anyone else. And the suffering of this life, we're to be constantly telling ourselves, isn't to be compared to what's coming for us. And so we need to be enabled then to endure all of this. And this is what Paul's talking about. When you are tired of the battle, when you're tired of the battle with all of the corruption, when you're tired even with the battle with personal sin, you're tired of battling weakness, you're tired of battling temptation, you're tired of battling sickness, you're tired of battling aches and pains, you're tired of battling economic troubles and relational troubles or whatever it might be. We just want to be free. But then Paul tells us in verse 24 that there's an element that we have to reconcile ourselves to, which is the fact that this salvation that we're hoping for isn't yet realized. It isn't yet realized. We have the internal testimony of the Spirit. It's telling us that we're children of God. In hope we were saved. But, he says, hope that is seen isn't hope. For who hopes for what he sees? That's the definition of hope. Hope, uh, hope is something that is yet unseen. It is something that's yet unrealized. That's the nature of our inheritance. That's the nature of what awaits us. It is wrapped up, not in full reality, but in hope. It is promised, it is guaranteed, it's a reality that's not yet seen, not yet realized, but because of our faith, because of our trust in those promises, we endure through all of this corruption. We endure through all of these trials. Now, along with that perspective and that patience, Paul also wants us to understand, very importantly, in verse 26, that we also have prayers. 
prayers of the Spirit for our suffering. We're not left alone in this. He tells us in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here now Paul's drawing this comparison. He uses the word likewise or in the same way. And the comparison is with the hope and the patience that sustains us through the, through the suffering, the perspective that we're trying to maintain. But just as we're endeavoring to do that, he says, just as we're trying to keep our perspective, just as we're doing everything that we can, in the same way, he says, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a powerful advocate for us. He's a powerful source of endurance and help in our weakness. And the idea is that perhaps even when we don't even know how to sustain ourselves, even when we, even when we ourselves are confused and, 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 and fearful or whatever it might be, even when our hope and our eager expectation and our patience are wavering in the midst of suffering, we have yet another source that sustains us, which is, which is the Holy Spirit, and specifically the prayers of the Holy Spirit. He intercedes for us. He, as Paul says, groans. He groans for us with sympathy. He intercedes with these groanings too deep for Words. Now, obviously, Paul's picking up the same language he's already talked about in terms of creation and in terms of even ourselves. He, the Holy Spirit, is also groaning. But he's not groaning because he himself is corrupt. He hasn't been subjected to the futility of creation. He hasn't been subjected to the curse uh, that you and I and everything around us is under, uh, under. And nevertheless, he experiences the groaning in the sense that he sympathizes with us. He feels, if you will, he enters into sort of our suffering together with us, not in the sense of being corrupted, but in the sense of having love and care and sympathy for what we're going through. He senses our struggle. He sympathizes with our agony and our disappointment and the battle that we're having whatever we're facing, and although he's never experienced the battle himself, he groans for us, with us, through it. And not only that, Paul says in verse 27, we don't know how we're supposed to pray during these times, but he who searches hearts, that is the Holy Spirit, knows what is, uh, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, here we are because of our own limitations, because of our own immaturities, because of our own remaining weakness in the flesh, because of our own frailty and our own finite understanding. Our perspective on our situation, on our suffering, can sometimes be flawed. It can sometimes be unclear. We don't always know how we're supposed to pray. And yet, God has promised tremendous help for us so that we get help by means of the, the, the Spirit's prayers. We don't know how we ought to be praying. We don't know what we ought to be asking for sometimes. We don't know whether we ought to ask for immediate deliverance. We don't know whether we ought to ask for patience. We don't know whether we ought to be uh, seeking to escape or, 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 or to go through. We don't know sometimes whether we ought to be praying for healing or whether we ought to be praying for just bearing up under the trial. We don't know all the times what exactly we ought to be praying for. But Paul's point is, you don't always have to know that. We don't always have to know what God is trying to do through each particular trial. Whether He's trying to teach us patience, or whether He's trying to teach us boldness, or whether He's trying to teach us faith, or whether He's trying to mold us into this or the other things. Is He trying to teach us to put more emphasis on trust, or is He trying to put us, uh, teach us to put more emphasis on prudence? But even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit is praying for us. And what's He praying? 
Well, he's praying that God would accomplish his purposes. He's praying according to the will of God. He's praying that whatever God wants to happen through whatever is going on with us is going to happen. Which brings us to the final point of encouragement that Paul wants us to have here, which is the plan or the providence of God through our suffering. The plan or providence of God through our suffering. In verse 28, Paul says, We know, we know that those for those who love God, all things work together for our good. These are the things for which we are certain. And we don't know how and we don't know why. And we don't always know what to ask for. But this thing we do know. This is the one thing that apart from everything else, we are to have squarely fixed in our mind as a certainty. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to look for. But we know this. We know that God is working it for our good. We know that as perplexed as we might be, as chaotic as the world might seem, as fully as we may not understand what's going on, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we are perplexed, but not in despair. Sometimes that happens. But because we know certain things, we have confidence in the midst of suffering. This is what allowed Luther to go right into the middle of the plague and to be guided by principles of love for others, putting himself sometimes even at personal risk because he had the absolute confidence that God was working for our good. At the same time, Luther wrote an extensive track defending those who for their own reasons and the own purposes that God was working through them decided to flee the city. And he understood that God was working different things in different people at different times, but he was confident that God was working. Confident that God was working. Another way to say this is nothing can work against us. Nothing can work against us. Nothing can happen to us that will bring about our ultimate demise, our ultimate harm. All of it, all of it works for good. That is internal and external. Internal Struggles, external battles, disease, temptation, persecution, all of it. And so we have to have this robust view of God and this confidence that He is sovereign over all these afflictions. Not to say this is ultimately what He wants it to be. As a matter of fact, these are reminders to us that the world's been subjected to a curse. This is a reminders to us that all of creation is groaning. This is reminders to us of, his, of exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 3. But they're also reminders to us that God didn't subject the world to this without hope. Hope that He's going to bring about redemption. Hope that He's going to hold near to Himself all of His children. And so Paul goes on to tell us in this glorious passage that God has chosen us. He has predestined us, that He's conforming us to the image of His Son so that He could bring about ultimately what He has called us to, which is what? Glorification. That we who are called are justified, we are justified, are also glorified. And Paul ends with these words. So what do we say these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also graciously give us all things? In His own time, in His own way, how will He not give us everything if He's already given us His Son? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who will condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died, moreover, that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So here the, 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 the Son is interceding along with the Spirit. So, verse 20, 35, excuse me, who will separate us from the love of God? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? None of it. None of it. In fact, verse 37, we're more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Doesn't matter what we're facing. Because of God's providential plan, because of God's providential love, because of the work of Christ, 
the promised seed, who has come and crushed the corrupter. He's crushed the head of the enemy. Because of all those things, He has reconciled us to Himself in our inner man, and He has caused us to be born again, as, as Peter says, to a living hope that will not disappoint. A hope that is forever fixed because of His resurrection. You see, Christ proved that this outer body is not all that there is when He Himself died and was, was raised from the dead. He proved that all of that hope is not misplaced. And the resurrection itself is the evidence of everything that God has promised to us. So this is what we need to be telling ourselves during this time. This is the way we need to be responding. Not running away and saying those things aren't true. Not going over here and ridiculing anyone who might be wrapped up in fear or anything. But realizing that we live in a dangerous world. We live in a fallen and corrupted world. And that no matter what this ends up being, it is ultimately another sign that is driving us back to the hope of the gospel that God has given to us in Christ. So that's my prayer for you as a church, for, for me, for everyone that I come in contact with, that we would respond as messengers of hope, that we would respond with the love of Christ, that we would respond not as those who are gripped by fear and the weight of what's going on, but we would constantly be weighing against it what awaits us in glory. And we'd find that our momentary light afflictions are nothing to be compared to those things. And freed up then from all the fears and the anxieties and everything that, that, that may grip us. Freed up from all of those things, we are empowered to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. We're empowered to minister in the midst of whatever we're going through, to minister to the weak, to the suffering, to the fearful all around us. Now, of course, all this assumes one very important thing, and that's the fact that you have hope. It assumes that you are, in fact, in Christ. Because it may very well be that this crisis has revealed something in your own heart. It's revealed that you don't know Christ. It's revealed that you've just sort of been going through life maybe with a, an outward form of religion and maybe just with some sort of self-righteousness or some sort of uh, vague sense of eternity, but you have never dealt with the critical reality that because of sin you have fallen under God's curse. This is the, the glorious message of the gospel that God not only stands as the judge of all of mankind, but He is the Savior. For all those who confess their sin, for all of those who acknowledge their curse, for all of those who stand underneath God's wrath, if they call on the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. And He can give you this same hope. He can give you this same perspective. He can rescue you, not only from the present fears, not only from the present corruption, but more importantly, He can rescue you from eternal damnation. That's our prayer for any who may not know Christ. That's our prayer for you today, is that you would respond to that message in the midst of this crisis and place your ultimate hope and trust in God. Thank you.